this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. For quite some time now, I've been wanting to um, share a bit around the, the Psalms. Just for interest's sake, um, who of you have heard, um, have sat in a sermon on, on a, one of the Psalms before? Okay, who of you have sat um, in a sermon about the Psalms in the last five years or so? Okay, not that many. You know, I, um, I realized that um, the Psalms has always been one of the mo- most, in a sense, popular books of the Bible for, for us as Christians, um, because we can really relate to it. You, you read the Psalms, uh, and the Psalms are, in a sense, it, it, it's always been the prayer book and the praise book of God's people, hasn't it? And you go through life, and you read about what David or Asaph or whoever went through, and, and you can relate to it, because it's, it's similar. You know, all the experiences of life, you know, persecution, hardship, betrayal, um, victory and rejoicing, you know, the whole spectrum of human experience is captured in the Psalms. And, and we know it's not only the, the experience of the, of the people. It's not only the prayers of the people. It's not only the praises of the people writing the Psalms. But we know that the Holy Spirit inspired those prayers. The Holy Spirit inspired those praises. So this is how God wants us to pray. This is the, the prayers that God wants to hear. These are the, pr- the praises that God wants to hear. As he has recorded them in the book of Psalms. And when you read the book of Psalms, um, sometimes you're a little bit surprised at the prayers. Aren't you? Sometimes you read it and you think, is this praise? <laughs> It's so real. It's so raw. It's so, you know, no holds barred. You know, it's, it's, you know, David sometimes just pours out his heart without any filters. You think, David, buddy, you're under inspiration now. You're recording scripture. You, you can't just sanitize that a bit, you know? This is, this is a bit too real, a bit too raw, huh? Because sometimes we don't pray like that. Sometimes our prayers aren't that real. Sometimes our prayers aren't that authentic. Sometimes we don't pour out our hearts so, so in, in such a, with so, such abandon before God. But we must realize that, that the Psalms are inspired by the Holy Spirit and that these are the kinds of prayers and the kinds of praises that God wants. In other words, God wants us to be real with Him. He wants us to be real with him. Uh, medieval commentators said the church has found nothing better or finer to put on the lips of the worshiper than the words of the book of, of Psalms. And um, the Psalms, we're going to look at Psalm 1 today, but the, uh, which sort of serves as an introduction to, to, the, to the whole Psalter. And you'll see that through the prayers and through the praises recorded in the Psalms. I mean, they're not just flat, superficial, puffy 
little prayers, you know, that sound nice, uh, or that are relevant, they're very deep, they're very theological, there's a lot of scripture in them, without them explicitly quoting scripture. And what Psalm 1 tells us is that one of the purposes of the Psalms is to teach us how to pray and to praise the word of God into our lives. One of the most difficult things and one of the most frustrating things in my life is that I often know what the Word of God says about something, but I'm unable to consistently do it. I don't know, is there anyone who can relate to that? (laughs) You know, we we know the Word says something, but, but somehow between hearing the Word and even understanding the Word and applying the Word, there seems to be this gulf, this big gap, this chasm that we cannot always cross. And we find ourselves being so inconsistent in applying the word of God. And what Psalm 1 does is it gives us an important key, a secret to bridging that chasm. You know, like um, Lauren was reading that scripture, more than that, blessed is the one who hears the word of the Lord and does it. And that's a constant theme running throughout the Old and the New Testament. You know, the the blessing, Jesus says to his disciples when he washed their feet, he says, blessed, now that you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And and, and we have this, I think one of the, the constant and biggest human struggles is this gap between our knowing and our doing. This frustration of we know what to do. We hear the scripture, but we cannot find how to do it. I mean, Paul complains about it in Romans 7. The things that I want to do, I cannot do. Who will deliver? A wretched man that I am will deliver me from this body of death. And I think one of the main reasons why we often struggle with this is because we have forgotten what the Psalms um, teach us. And... um, the, psalm teach, the Psalms uh, teach us how to pray and how to praise God's word into our lives in all circumstances, on all occasions, no matter what, what's going on in our lives. So just bring up that next slide of um, Psalm 1. <clears throat> I know it's a bit small, so some of you won't be able to read it. I'm just going to go through it. Um, a beautiful psalm, a well-known psalm, and I just sort of laid it out there for you so that you can sort of see the structure of it. Uh, remember Psalms... The Psalms are poetry. It's not a theological treatise. It's not a, a lecture. It's not, it's, not a, um, it's not a portion of history. It's not a list of laws. It's poetry. It's songs. They sang them. And in Hebrew poetry, you, you, you got um, lots of different uh, things to, you know, you, you didn't get that much rhyme in Hebrew poetry. Um, you got some meter, you know, so you have a rhythm of poetry. But the main thing that you have in Hebrew poetry is, is what's called parallelism. And, and here you have a specific form of parallelism called chiasm, which, um, you know, has sort of an X form. And uh, I'm just going to read it to you, but, but what I want you to, to remember is that songs have words, so it addresses your head. Songs have melodies. So it addresses your heart. And songs have rhythm. 
which gets you involved. It addresses your hands in, in a sense. So, so the, the unique power of the Psalms is that it has this power to address every part of us, head, heart, and hands. So, so don't just hear it with your head. Feel it. Feel the rhythm of it. Feel it driving you to action, as it were. So it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And um, as you can see, I've just sort of divided it up there into, um, into three portions. The first portion talks about the way of the righteous, what it's not, what it is. The second portion talks about the way of the wicked um, in contrast to, to the way of the righteous. And then the, the, the last portion just sort of summarizes everything when it says in verse 6, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, but the way of the wicked will perish. So that's why I've called this sermon the two ways, because it contrasts these two ways. And you know, one of the most challenging things for us as modern people is that this, these two ways that we're going to see later on is a theme throughout Scripture. But here's the problem. According to Scripture, these are the only two ways. There aren't many ways. There's not the way of the wicked, the way of the righteous, and then the way of the disinterested. There's no third way. There are only two ways. There are only two ways. And we're either on one or the other of those two ways. Um, then if you just look at, at the, the letters I put there, the A's um, all talk about what the way of the righteous is. Then the B talks about um, what it's like. It uses a metaphor. It says, he is like a tree. So it, it uses a, a, a simile to, to compare it. And then it ends off in, in summary uh, under the letter C by saying, whatever he does prospers. And then C accent that I've got up there, says, not so the wicked. In other words, the wicked is contrasted to it. It's, it's the opposite. And then the B accent is, the wicked is like, and it uses a metaphor, just like the righteous is like a tree, the wicked is like chaff. Okay, and then uh, B accent, uh, oh, sorry, A accent says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Notice, it talks about the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of mockers, uh, and, and in mirror image of that is... is um, the judgment and, and, and the assembly of the righteous. And then it summarizes it. So let's just look at this psalm and, 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 and see what it means. It starts off by saying, blessed is the man. Blessed. Now, um, as I've said before, often people say blessed means happy. But I really think that's a, a weak translation of the word blessed. Blessed means a lot more than happy. It includes the thought of being happy. It includes the thought of being, um, yes, you are to be congratulated you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a good word. <laughs> blessed is a good word. But, but it's not just happy. To say blessed are the happy, it, it just doesn't work. I mean, if you look at the Beatitudes, one of the Beatitudes is blessed are those who mourn. Right? 
Is Jesus saying blessed are the sad, or happy are the sad? You can be blessed. You cannot be happy when you're sad, but you can be blessed when you're sad. So a blessing is a lot more than just happiness. Um, so um, what is blessing? Um, often it's, it's, um, it's good to look at, at a word and define it by its opposite. The opposite of blessing is cursing. So what do you mean when you say someone is cursed? Cursed is someone. You, you, mean, you mean more than sad. You mean things routinely. You mean things routinely go wrong in their lives, right? You mean there seems to be a supernatural negative influence in their lives, right? So therefore, if blessing is the opposite of cursing, then blessing would be a supernatural positive influence in someone's life so that things seem to routinely go right in someone's life, even when they go wrong. That's when you say they're blessed. And, and, and the contrast in, in this psalm um, talks about blessing as the flourishing of a well-watered tree versus cursing as the fading of the wind-blown chaff. In other words, when you're blessed, there's an increase, there's a growth in everything, in, in, in a good sense. Whereas when, if you're cursed, there would be a decrease. There'd be failure, decrease all the time um, from it. Okay, so uh, it says, blessed, be the, blessed is the man. And I just want to um, note there that man does not, as we as modern people sometimes think, exclude women. Okay? In... in in biblical Hebrew and Greek, as well as in Old English, up to about probably 50 years ago, it was quite acceptable to use um, the word man or mankind as generic for all people uh, because of you know, political correctness and um, the feminist movement that has uh, made lots of inroads and, and defined lang- redefined language, actually. Um, the word man is seen as an exclusive term when actually it's not. Well, not in this text, at least. Maybe some modern people would use the word man as an exclusive term to exclude women. The Bible doesn't. It uses it as a representative term for, for people in general. So ladies, please don't think that you're excluded in this. <laughs> so verse 1 tells us what the blessed person doesn't do, and then verses 2 and 3 tell us what, what they do do. Okay, so let's look at verse 1. Blessed is, is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, um, it's using, can you see the parallelism there? Blessed is the man who does not, and each time it has a verb. Walk, stand, sit, in the counsel, the way, the seat of the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. Or the mockers. Can you see the parallelism there? It's mutually interpret, uh, interpretive. In, in other words, it's blessed is the person who avoids these influences. Blessed is the person who settles down in these places where, where this kind of thing, wickedness, sin, or whatever reigns. So, um, blessed is the man who does not stand in the way 
of sinners. Notice that little word way. And it's repeated again in the last verse of, of, the, of the psalm, right? The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's a very important word. It comes at the beginning and the end of the psalm. So, so this psalm is about ways. Now, your ways aren't just um, you know, the path that you walk on physically. It's your way of life. In a sense, it's your habits. It's your lifestyle. And what he's saying here is, the company you keep and the counsel you receive and the identity you accept determines your lifestyle, your habits, your ways. And you are blessed if you make sure that certain influences are not part, do not form your habits. Because here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing. Remember that first we form our habits and then our habits form us. First we choose our habits, but once you've chosen your habits, you've got to live with the habits that you've chosen. And habits are powerful things. They're like, they're like a, a psychological um, force of gravity. I mean, gravity, you can say, okay, gravity is a bad thing, you know. I cannot fly around because of gravity. I cannot be Superman. But it's also a good thing. I mean, if gravity were not there, you'd float off into space, <laughs> right? Everything would float off into space, you know. You'd have to tie everything down. So in a sense, yeah, breaking free of gravity is hard, you know. And if you want to send a rocket ship to the moon, you know, it takes a lot of energy and you have to have a, quite a big, strong rocket, you know, to break free of the power of the force of gravity. And, then to, and it's the same. It's hard to break bad habits on the bad side. <laughs> so all of you know that. You know, whether you, you bite your nails or, you know, whether you you know, come from a, a, a sort of a very um, wild background and you were sexually promiscuous before marriage and, and you, you know, it became a habit and you want to break it, or drug addiction, or just, you know, even your verbal culture, you know, using foul language or swearing, you know. Many of you have struggled with, with those and many other destructive or, or difficult habits to break. And all of those, most of those bad habits, probably all of them, we picked up When we walked in the counsel of the wicked, when we stood in the way of sinners, when we sat in the seat of scoffers, right? We picked up their way of life. Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good habits or corrupt good character. Um, and that is what, what this author is saying. And he's saying to us, avoid that. Avoid those negative influences. And, and I mean, just let me just talk to the parents here. Isn't that exactly what we try and teach our parents, our, our children, as parents? We try and teach our children. <laughs> some of us try to teach. It was a slip. <laughs> Maybe it was a prophecy for someone. <laughs> we, we try and, that's exactly what we try and teach our children. We don't want them to pick up these bad habits because we've seen how destructive it's been in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. And we say, don't, avoid that. Note also that there's, there's this communal aspect about it. Much of your way of life, much of your lifestyle, much of your habits are formed in community. Now that doesn't mean we should completely avoid Sinners. 
Jesus didn't. And in fact, that is one of the main things that the Pharisees accused him of. You eat with sinners and tax collectors and all kinds of unsavory characters. Haven't you read Psalm 1? And Jesus would say, yes, I've read it. I just understood it a little bit different from you. Psalm 1 doesn't say that I should avoid the wicked and sinners and the scoffers. It says I should not walk in their counsel. I should not stand in their way. I should not sit in their seat. In other words, they shouldn't influence me, but I should influence them. Hello? Are you just a thermometer of the spiritual and moral temperature in your environment? Are you being formed by what's going on in your environment? Are you just a product of your environment? Or are you a thermostat that determines the spiritual temperature of your environment? We shouldn't be afraid of the world. We should not avoid the world. We should seek out the world, but make sure that we seek it out and spend time with people in the world, not so that they influence us and corrupt us, but so that we influence them like Jesus did. Amen? And then it says in the beginning of verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So at the beginning of, of that but, at the beginning of, of, of verse 2, shows us a contrast. Says this is what you what what the blessed person doesn't do, but in contrast, here is what the blessed person does do. Says his delight is in the law of the Lord. So instead of having the formative influence of your life come from society in general, which is fallen, you allow the fallen the, the, the formative influence of your life to come from the law of the Lord. Literally in the Hebrew, it's the Torah of Yahweh. And Torah can mean the, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. It can mean um, the, 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 the Old Testament as a whole. Um, here I think it, it means just instruction, because the, the word Torah literally means instruction. Here I think it means instruction in its most general sense. In other words, you make your, the formative influence in your life the instructions of Yahweh, the instructions of the Lord. The Lord forms your life, not society. When you want to see who you are, you look into the mirror of the Torah. You don't look into the social mirror. Okay, so a different influence. And I just also want you to notice, it says, that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then he goes on at the end of verse 3 to say, whatever he does, prospers. Notice those those words, those action words, delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on the law of the Lord. Everything that he does prospers. Why? Because he does. He obeys. He does the law of the Lord. And not just doing it on occasion, but doing it as part of his way. He makes it, that, that is where the way of the righteous comes from, the lifestyle of the righteous. It comes from this process by which the law of the Lord, the instruction of Yahweh, becomes part of our lives, becomes our default position, our modus operandi, our natural knee-jerk reaction is to obey God's word because it's our way, it's our habit, it's our lifestyle. Wouldn't it be amazing if you can get God's word into your lifestyle consistently in such a way that that is your default position? That that is 
what you habitually do. Isn't that what we want? Not only for ourselves, but for our families, for our, for our friends, for our country, for crying out loud. It wouldn't be amazing <laughs> if the law of the Lord you know, governed people's lives. But, but I want you to notice that in order to, because these verses give us the process by which the law of the Lord becomes the way of our lives. And it's a process that's from the inside out. First delighting in the law, then meditating on the law, and then doing the law. Can you see that? Can you see that inside out process? And the world so often tries to change us from the outside in. Now if we just, or people steal and people, um, you know, vandalize or people do that, this and that and the other just because of external circumstances. They, they don't have jobs, they don't have money, etc. And, and yes, those are contributing factors. But you take someone who's truly a righteous man and you put him in those same circumstances and he will not steal. He will not vandalize. He will not hurt others. Because his way is the way of the Lord. So it's true change happens from the inside out. You can try and impose change from the outside in. It doesn't work. Christianity doesn't work like that. It doesn't. I mean, there have been very unfortunate patches in church history where the church has tried that. You know, I remember reading in church history about about the, the Roman Catholic Church, I think it was in the five six hundreds after Christ, and and after Constantine, and, and, and when when uh, Christianity had become uh, the state religion in Rome in the Roman Empire, and they were forcing people to become Christians, and they would like go and conquer the Roman armies would go and conquer nations uh, in like the fourth fifth century, and, and they'd like hold swords or spear to people's throat and say, you know, convert to Jesus Christ or die. I say, well, I don't know who this Jesus is, but I convert to him. I believe in him. I will praise him. I'll do whatever you say. Just don't kill me. And we saw what the result was of that was. The dark ages. You, Christianity is not something you can impose on anyone. It's not something you can force anyone to walk in. It, it has to happen from the inside out. It has to start with delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on it and then doing it because you want to. Whatever you delight in with your heart and think on with your head, you will eventually act on with your hands. Can you see that, that progression of head, heart, hand, heart, and then head and hands? Okay. So delight in, in the Torah with your heart leads to meditating on it with your head. Notice he says he meditates on it day and night. And that means that obviously he's memorized it. Right? If, if he meditates on it day and night, it means he's memorized it. It means he can lie on his bed with the lights off and meditate on it. I mean, there are, there are scriptures um, that, that actually talk about Let me just actually read that one in, in, in um, Psalm 119. It's interesting. Psalms is the longest book in the Bible, by far. <laughs> I always find it very telling that the longest book in the Bible is specifically focused on, on praise and worship. That tells us um, something, doesn't it? And um, it has the, the longest chapter, the shortest chapter, which is Psalm 117, which I'm actually going to share on tonight. At the, at the worship evening. And it also has the longest chapter, which is this one, Psalm 119. 
in the entire Bible. So in, in verse 148 it says, My eyes are awake um, before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise or on your word. So I lie awake. It's dark. Still the part of the night watches. But I've memorized your word. And therefore I can meditate on it. So one of the first steps to meditating on the word is actually memorizing it. You cannot meditate on words you have not memorized. And, and mem- scripture memorization, you know, I'm so glad for, for Trevor and Sharon who do it with the kids. You know, every Sunday they've got a memory verse and stuff that they have to memorize. I think for the young guys um, this morning, it's actually the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. And I think Justin's going to ace it because he prays the Our Father every evening. <laughs> he knows it. He's memorized it. <laughs> um, but for us as, as modern people, we, we're so used to, you can get the information somewhere. I mean, you can Google it for crying out loud. We don't hardly memorize anything. I mean, in, in years gone by, people would still memorize telephone numbers, right? You remember those days, long ago, when you only had landlines, no cell phones, and you actually had to memorize cell phone numbers? Now we don't anymore. Everything's like on your cell phone. You just pull out your cell phone, type in the name. We we, we've trained our brains not to memorize things. We're really bad at memorizing things. I mean, in those days, before email, when someone phoned you, and gave you, your boss phoned you and gave you instruction on the phone. You had to make sure you either had a piece, of pen and, a piece of paper and a pen to write it down. Or you had to memorize the instruction. Now you say, uh, excuse me boss, can you put that on a mail and just pop it to my inbox? Because <laughs> I don't want to remember it. And we've trained our brains not to remember. We're really bad at remembering. Aren't we? But we need to memorize scripture. Because when the demon's at the door... You know, even if you have a little, you know, pocket Bible like me, you know, there's not time to pull it out and start searching, you know, where's the right scripture for that? It's got to be in your heart. It's got to be in your mind you, so that the Holy Spirit can activate it and use the sword of the Spirit. Use the sword of the Spirit. I mean, it's, it's like some of us, just by the way, the, when, when Ephesians 6 talks about the sword of the Spirit... The Greek word used there is not logos. It's rhema. The sword of the spirit is not your Bible. Hello? This is not the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit is what you've memorized. What's in your heart. Ooh, some of us have a little pocket knife of the spirit. (laughs) Or a needle of the spirit. You know? I'm going to prick the devil when he comes, you know? With my needle of the spirit. So I've got, I've got three scriptures that I've memorized. And then some of us have like a broadsword of the spirit. You know, a makulu thing. That you can cut the devil down to size with. Okay. Then the next step is to think about it. Once you've memorized scripture, how do you meditate? First step is, is, is to memorize it. Then you think about it. Mull over it. It, all of that is implied in the actual word there for, for meditate. It means thinking constantly on it. And, and, and the beautiful picture in, in, the, in the Bible is, of course, of sheep um, ruminating. And Af- Afrikaans has such a nice word, herko. <laughs> Rechewing <laughs> the word. You know, the, the sheep would chew the cut, so they, 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 they'd like bring it up and, and, and sort of rechew the food. And, and in a sense, 
we are, that's why we're the sheep. And Jesus is the shepherd. We like sheep. We can actually ruminate. We can chew the cud. And that's when it, when we really digest it and it becomes part of our lives. And then the word for meditate there means a bit more than just meditation. It's more than just thinking. It actually implies verbal action as well. So it implies whispering or murmuring. So, so when you meditate in the biblical sense, there's also an actual speaking of the words, murmuring them, repeating them, saying them over and over. So there's a verbal aspect and the, and the rest of, 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 of the points about meditation are all on that. So, so murmuring it. In other words, speaking it to yourself. Speaking scripture, the law of Yahweh, the law of the Lord to yourself. Over and over again. Have you ever seen um, Orthodox Jews meditating? Like in Jerusalem at the Wailing Wall, they'll sit there with their black clothes and their back hats and their tassels and stuff. And they'll go like this and they'll, you know, be murmuring, you know, to themselves. That, that's that's meditate, meditating. They'll sort of sit there and, and rock like this and they'll, they'll speak, you know, under their breath while they do that. Because that's what biblical meditation is. That's what, what, the, what the Hebrew word means. It means, in a sense, not only thinking about Scripture, but actually murmuring it, whispering it, speaking it softly while you're thinking about it. Okay, and then it's not only speaking it to yourself, but also speaking it to God. In other words, praying it. Meditation includes a, a, an aspect of saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to talk to myself about this Scripture, but I'm also going to talk to God about this Scripture. I'm going to speak to God. I'm going to say, God, you know, I've been thinking about this scripture and, and you know, this instruction in the scripture, but Lord, you know, it's hard for me. I, I know I'm, I'm not always getting it right. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I, I'm struggling with it. You know, God, won't you help me? How, how, can I, how can I do this? How can I live this? How can this become part of my way? God, I'm, I'm not the kindest person in the world. In fact, Lord, I can be pretty unkind and harsh. God, how... How, how can I um, make your word that says I must be kind part of my lifestyle, part of my way? How can, I, how can I make it part of my life? Help me, Lord. Help me to do that. And then also speaking to others, discussing it. talks about the assembly of the righteous versus the, the counsel of the wicked. You know, so, so when you spend time with friends and you're actually talking about the word of the Lord, you're actually in a sense meditating together, communally meditating on the word and that's an important part of the process of getting the word of God from the pages of scripture into your heart into your life into your habits into your ways amen so whereas eastern meditation tries to empty tries to get you to empty your mind and your heart biblical meditation tries to get you to fill your heart and your mind with the word of the Lord Inside out, delight in it, meditate on it, and do it. So meditating um, with her head leads to um, doing with your, with your hands. Blessed is the person, um, the blessed person, sorry, is likened to a well-watered tree. And I, I like the image here. It's such a beautiful image. It, it talks about, you know, he delights and meditates. And now, now delighting and meditating are sort of, Private things. Delight is like a, something in your heart, you know, a feeling in your heart. Meditating, it starts 
it starts in your heart and in your mind and then it, it, it slowly goes out, you know, into murmuring, into speaking to yourself, to God, to others. Um, but but it's, it, it's, it's not something you can see very plainly in someone's life. And, and it says, this person who is blessed is like a tree planted by the streams of water. And think about this tree's root system going deep in. You know, into the, 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 the rich source of water, of the stream flowing by it. And drinking in that water. You cannot see the roots. Just like you cannot see those things in the heart, in our hearts, that allow us to drink from the streams of God's word. Can you see that? In other words, there's sort of a hidden, a I almost want to say private. I don't like the word private because, you know, in our world with a private-public divide, the sacred-secular divide, you know, it's like, oh, religion is a private thing, you know, keep it private. Um, but I mean private in the good sense of the word. You know, like when, when God says, go into your inner room, close your door, you know. There's a private life with God that must precede your public life with God. And your private victories will always precede your public victories. Hello? If you're not delighting, if you're not meditating, you will not be blessed in all that you do. Because you won't be consistently able to do what you want to do and what, what's in God's word. Isn't that so? And, and just also, I mean, some of you might read that, whatever he does prospers. It sounds like such an absolute statement. And some of you might say, oh, you know, come on, you know. I've been a Christian for long enough to know that not whatever I do seems to prosper. You know, in fact, the wicked seems to prosper sometimes. And even some of the Psalms say that. You know, some of the Psalms are complaints by David. Lord, why are the wicked prospering? Why is it going so well with them? Now, so is this like just a superficial, you know, stereotyped view of, oh, just be good and then you'll be blessed and then everything will go right in your life. Nothing will ever go wrong. Is that what the Psalm is saying? No. It says, he's like a tree planted by the streams of water that bears its fruit in season. You see, you still, that psalm says you still go through the seasons of life. You experience, you know, um, you experience autumn, you experience summer, you experience the, the new life of spring, but you also experience winter when there, when there aren't any fruit. In the winter, there aren't any fruit. But it says, who bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Even in winter, you still have your leaves. In other words, you're evergreen. God's word and the streams of God's word, if you tap into it with the, with the roots of delighting and meditating, God's word will turn you evergreen. Even in the hard, even in the cold seasons, even in the winter seasons of life. When there's not any fruit in your life, there will still be leaves. There will still be life. There will still be growth. There'll still be growth. People will still be able to see life. Yeah, and then I just want you to note something else. Um, it says, he's like a stream planted by the streams of water. Planted by whom? Here's the thing. Trees don't plant themselves. So, uh, Isaiah 61 verse 3 says, to grant to those in, uh, who, who mourn in Zion, 
to give them beautiful ashes, sorry, to give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes, all of gladness. I've got to write the verse here. Yeah, there, in the end of that verse it says, that they may be called oaks of righteousness or trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. See, these trees of righteousness are planted by the Lord. And that to me speaks about that new life, that born again experience of God actually planting you in his word so that you delight in his word and and so that you're able to do his word. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said regarding John Bunyan that if you cut him, he'd bleed scripture. Now, John Bunyan wasn't a, a highly educated man, you know, he wasn't like a theologian or so. Um, but he spent a lot of time reading the word, meditating on the word. In fact, he spent quite a lot of time in prison. His most famous book, you, most of you know it, The Pilgrim's Progress, which um, is still one of the best selling books of all time. Hundreds of millions of copies were printed of, of that book. Um, was written in prison, if I'm not mistaken. And he, he spent a, quite a bit of time in prison reading the word, meditating on the word, thinking on it, memorizing the word. And um, that's why Spurgeon said, I just actually want to read you the whole quote that he says about, um, about Bunyan. He says, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get the word into ourselves, into our hearts. As I've seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let our eyes glance over the words or to recollect the poetic expressions or the historic facts. But it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. Um, And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. I would quote John Bunyan as an uh, instance of what I mean. Read anything of his and you will see that it's almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it until his very soul was saturated with scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress, the sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, cut him, and he will bleed scripture. His blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text. For his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. That is the blessed man. Man who delights in the law of the Lord. Who meditates on it day and night. Until it saturates his being. And flows into everything that he says and does. He says, not so the wicked, for they are like chaff that the wind blows away. And I just put up a little picture there of, of winnowing, because many of us don't know what winnowing is. You, you, you harvest grain, and, and part of the harvest, part of the fruit of the grain is the actual seed, but it's contained within a little husk, you know, the, the chaff. You know, that is, 
you know, that you have to separate. And, and so they'll, they'll go to a threshing floor and they'll, you know, in, in a windy place or they'll make a fire in a, within a tunnel to create an artificial wind and they'll take the, um, you know, they'll beat it and then they'll take it and throw it into this wind and then the, the light chaff will blow away but the heavy, weighty seeds will, will fall down and that's how you separate them. And, and almost always in the Bible, when this picture of this winnowing, this separation of the, of the seed and the chaff is used. It's in the context of judgment. So the wicked will be judged, will be separated from the people of God. The winds of life will blow them away. They, they light. The, the, the chaff is, is, is weightless and worthless. So contrast that to the trees. It says that the trees rooted it's planted next to the stream of water. The chaff has no roots. It's blown by the wind. And we see that in people's lives, don't we? When people aren't rooted in the word, they're blown by the wind. This way, that way, the other way. There's no stability. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, but will fall. And, and Jesus um, latches onto that in Matthew 7, verse 26 and 27. He says... Whoever, the man who builds his, who hears my word and does not do them, is like a man who builds on the sand. It says, and the, and the wind came and the rain came and the storm came and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. The storms of life will beat against it and it will fall. And if, if the wicked does not fall in this life, then the storms of the afterlife will call, cause him more to fall. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor in the assembly of the righteous. So let me just finish off the summary point. Verse 6 talks about the two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Um, and these two ways are, are, are a, a theme. Let's just go to the next slide. A theme in Scripture. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 and 20 says, God says to Israel, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and the curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. Here's the thing. I just want you to see one thing from the scripture. There's a lot there, but I just want you to see one thing. Like I said, you choose your ways. Okay? But, but here's, here's, here's the warning and here's the challenge to us. Whatever you choose, you don't only choose for yourself. It says, choose life that you and your descendants may live. Whatever you choose, your descendants are stuck with. Whatever you choose, your children are going to receive. Your friends are going to receive. You don't only choose for yourself. You choose life or death, blessing or cursing, for yourself and for those around you, for your nearest and dearest. Notice those two ways. Jeremiah 21 verse 8 says, And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Those are the only two ways set before you. Those two paths. The way of life and the way of death. Matthew 7 verse 13 and 14, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Can you see the two ways there? Can you see the two ways? 
And those are the only two ways. Jesus says those are the two ways. And, and, and for us as fallen human beings, the broad way is easy. It comes naturally. It comes naturally to our fallen human nature. The narrow way, the way of life, is counter-instinctual, counter our fallen human desires. The Lord watches, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I just drew that um, picture there so you can see what they call a, that chiastic structure. The, the word chiastic comes from, from the Greek word chi, which is like an X. Um, and you have the structure where it says, for the, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, and then corresponding to the way of the righteous is, but the way of the wicked and then corresponding to the Lord watches over his will perish. Can you see the contrast there? Can you see that? What does that tell us? It tells us that the Lord watches over doesn't merely mean that the Lord is aware of. The Lord takes note of. The Lord knows. The Lord sees the way. I mean, the Lord is all-knowing. He's, he's, he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows the way of Everyone, he's aware of the way of the wicked. He's not ignorant of it. So when it says the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, it must mean more than just the Lord takes note of it or he sees it or he observes it. What does it mean? In contrast, if you look at that chiastic contrast, it means that the Lord watches over is contrasted with the way of the wicked which will perish. So the Lord watches over the way of the righteous to preserve it, to make sure that it doesn't perish. One of the best examples of this in, in Scripture, I just want to read you that um, in Genesis 39, um, just one or two verses. Genesis 39, verse, verse 2 and 3 says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of, the, of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. See, it repeats it twice. It doesn't say he saw that he was a competent young man. And so he says he saw that the Lord was with him. The Lord was watching over his way. Was with him. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. Same thing in verse... Um, 21, and the Lord was with Joseph and he showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. This is when he's thrown into dungeon, into prison, innocently. Okay? See the seasons of life? Guess what? If you're a righteous man like Joseph, you might still get thrown into prison. You might still be treated unfairly. You might still be persecuted. But even when you're persecuted, even when you're in prison, whether you're in Potiphar's house, in, in prison or in the palace, the hand of the Lord is with you. And the Lord is watching over your way to preserve it from perishing. Can you see that? And verse 3 to 4 says, whatever he does, prospers. God is, like Joseph, is watching over your way to prosper it. That doesn't mean everything goes right, but it means everything goes according to God's will. Romans 8 verse 28, for we know that everything Works together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For when we foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son Jesus, that is true prospering. 
being conformed to the image of Jesus. So whether in Potiphar's house as a slave or in prison as a, as a prisoner or in the palace as a governor, God's going to watch over your way to make sure that you are blessed and that you become more like Jesus every step of the way. So to watch over, I'm not going to read it now because I've actually gone over my time. But go and read Deuteronomy number 6, verse 22 to 27. It's that ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, etc. So in other words, blessing is God's favor, God's watching over you, God's hand upon you for good, like it says in Nehemiah 2, verse 7 and 8. God watches over Jeremiah 1 verse 12, God watches over his word to perform it. Okay, so the Lord ensures that the way of the righteous flourishes and the way of the wicked fades. God actively ensures it. So, if the counsel of your life determines the course of your life, what counsel do you receive? What is the formative influence on your way. Are you planted next to the streams of living water? Do you have roots that go underground where no one can see that drink in the water of God's word and God's spirit? Are you a rootless tree and all that only religion that you have is a public religion? What people see in public. Like the Pharisees, you pray in public when people see, and you pray long prayers then. But behind closed doors, there's nothing happening. Do you have roots? The key to me, the key to me here, is that verse that says that the righteous is like a tree planted by the streams of water. God, by His grace, Jesus, through his death on the cross, through his broken body and his shed blood, if we believe in that, if we receive that, he can plant us as trees in a place and in a way that we can grow. Amen.